Dr. Peter Bogosian is an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. He has, in fact, been teaching as a pedigree lecturer for 25 years. His fundamental objective when he teaches is to really teach people how to think, to think rationally, to think without prejudice, to help them be able to make their ways through seemingly intractable problems. Peter's primary research areas are really essentially related to critical thinking and moral reasoning. He has been published in USA Today, Aereo, New Statesman, Scientific American, Time Magazine, Dialogos, Counterpunch, The Philosopher's Magazine, Skeptical Inquirer, amongst many other publications. He teaches critical thinking and science and pseudoscience, and also the philosophy of education and atheism, again at Portland State University. He is also a national speaker for the Center for Inquiry and the Secular Student Alliance, and an international speaker for the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. Welcome. Wonderful to have you here. Would you mind very much, Dr. Bogosian, if I were to refer to you as Peter? Oh, please, I, that, would be, that would be most preferable. Thanks. Wonderful. If you'll just allow me the license, I'm going to try and catch people up with what's been going on in your life for the, for the last okay. few months uh, or year and thereabouts. Basically, Dr. Peter Bogosian, my guest, grew tired, along with his colleagues James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, of agenda-driven spurious research, research designed simply to advance, in many cases, what he would term identity politics. Following in the footsteps of Professor Alan Sokol, who in 1996 wrote and published a bogus humanities article that was essentially a nonsense and jargon-drenched work of meaninglessness, Bogerson, along with his colleagues, again, Lindsay and Pluckrose, began submitting ridiculous works to so-called scholarly academic journals. Now, 20 articles were submitted, intentionally, of extremely dubious quality in terms of academic scrutiny and rigor. And amazingly, seven passed peer review and were accepted. These approved works included a feminist-oriented revision of Out of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and an article declaring that dog parks are rape-condoning spaces. This later work significantly won recognition, and moreover was granted a position of excellence and published by Gender, Place and Culture magazine. Now, it was Gillian McClare, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, who became suspicious, and that blew the lid. The Chronicle of Higher Education ran a small, well, forum addressing this issue, and as a consequence, my guest's job has been, well, somewhat in a dubious state of its own because he may not be able to continue. At least that's the intent as read by some. You see, Portland State University now seems positioned to sanction Dr. Bogosian for daring to declare, like the proverbial emperor, that some social science scholars have no clothes. Welcome again. How did you get into this? What was your academic background initially? Thanks. I appreciate that. One quick clarification on that wonderful introduction. So we wrote 20 total papers, and seven of them were published or accepted. We had seven more in the pipeline when we got caught, basically, by the ah, Wall Street. Okay, so, the, so uh, there could have been 14 very easily. There could have been. In fact, many of those were days away from being accepted for publication, be, being uh, being um, accepted. So we could have had up to 14, um, and I don't know 
what happened. So to answer your question, how did I get into this? Was it, what was your question again? Well, you, how did you get into this with your academic background? But but let me just skip that for a second because you, uh, a very important question has, has come to my mind. Uh, one of the things that I like to cultivate, like you as a professor, is I like to basically bring along a younger audience. And we are very, very pleased that with our demographics, we have young people who are learning things all the time. Uh, we also have an older, more sophisticated audience. But for my younger audience, would you explain the difference, please, between an academic journal article versus a regular article? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great question. So when you publish in an academic article, an academic article, it's called a peer-reviewed article. And the peer-reviewed process is when your peers, when colleagues who have an expertise in the area, read it and say, okay, this is good, this is not good, this needs work, and then it's accepted into the, to the broader canon of knowledge. And when that gets accepted, we call that knowledge. So a peer-reviewed article usually for professors to get tenure, which is a job for life, they have to publish one a year in general in the humanities for seven years, and then they they receive uh, tenure. So a regular article is not peer-reviewed. So if I want to write an, an op-ed for a newspaper, or if I want to write an opinion piece, or my peers don't look at that, an editor looks at that and says, aha, this is good or not. Now, anybody can publish on a blog. Anybody can publish on uh, their own site. That's very, very different from a peer-reviewed article. How does this have greater significance than a regular article? Because there are many people who are not part of the academic community. There are many people who are not necessarily involved in universities or colleges who are just as happy to read non-peer-reviewed things in, in newspapers, as you've mentioned. What makes an academic paper so distinct? That's a wonderful question. An academic paper is distinct because the general community, both inside and outside of academia, point to those papers and say, this is knowledge. This is how we know. And then those papers inform public policy. And what are the ramifications for society? Well, the ramifications depending on the area. So if we want to build a bridge, for example, we don't just invent bridge building ex nihilo, you know, from nothing. If we want to build a bridge, we look at the the literature on how to build a bridge. We have experts who, who pa- pass a, a formal process, like in medicine, for example. You take a test, a peer-reviewed te- a board-certified test, and your peers make that test. And if you pass that test, then you have domain-specific expertise and you can practice medicine and prescribe drugs, et cetera. But if that process is corrupted, if there's something in that literature and in that scholarship, what happens then is that people act on what they think is knowledge but is not knowledge. So they do what they think is in their own best interest and their best interest of their communities, but it is not they've been led astray. So over time, we've come to trust the peer review process is something we can rely upon, that if it is in a peer review journal, it is knowledge. I can rely upon this. I can use whatever this set of facts is or whatever is reported, and I can use this to make a better life. I can construct conditions outside of myself that bring myself and my community closer to flourishing, closer to my own well-being. But if the process is corrupted, then 
you're doing something that you think is in your own best interest, but it is not. So it's agenda-driven, is your argument? Uh, Well, my argument is that the peer review process should absolutely positively not be agenda-driven. The peer review process should be something that we can rely upon to be neutral. For example, global climate change is a great example. The science is very complicated, so we need to be able to trust those journals, and we need to be able to trust the articles that come out of those journals. Now, the public policy decisions that are made on the basis of that, that is obviously agenda-driven. But the science should never be agenda-driven. Well, with your colleague, Helen Pluckrose, who's also the editor of uh, Aereo magazine, uh, you, you submitted an article explaining what you had done, and you said, all of you, we had become fluent in its language, meaning this pseudo, if you will, social science and its customs. What is part of that language? Part of that language, it's both vocabulary, so words like hegemonic, patriarchy, patri- anything with patriarchy is always always good. Um, there are certain terms that they use, but more than the vocabulary, it's that certain conclusions are acceptable and far more likely to be published. For example, men are bad, white men are bad heterosexuality is problematic. Oh, that's another great word, problematic. Every, everything is problematic. So if you want to figure out how to write a paper in grievance studies, you just find, find things that you do in life and then problematize them. So you, want to, you can't just be that you go to the, the dog park. There has to be some kind of a problem there. So you, you problematize it as a, as a petri dish for rape culture, canine rape culture. So the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I stepped on you. Please continue. Well, um, you asked about the, the language. The language is that the, the papers all forwarded a conclusion, and the conclusion was to somehow problematize something, and then we dressed it up in fancy words, and we cited the literature that was already there, and we made a problem out of something, and then that problem was in alignment or it comported with ideas, ideological agendas that they already have, whiteness, maleness, you know, putting in one of our papers, it was uh, putting white men, white heterosexual men in college classrooms on the floor in chains as a form of experiential reparations. So, and then prioritizing their emails and not answering their emails, et cetera. So you find a problem or you make a problem out of something that's not there, and then you dress it up. Now, many people listening to this program would assume and would accuse you, at least, of being right-wing conservative Republican. But in fact, you declare quite the opposite, both you and your colleagues. You are not conservative at all, are you? No, I'm, I'm a liberal. I've never voted for a Republican in my life. And I think that this is a form of tribalism that we saw. You know, I, I wrote a book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and was very involved in the new, the new atheist movement. And I was always attacked by many on the right as being a liberal, um, and now that I've attacked those whose moral impulses I share, but the rigor of how they got there to their conclusions I do not share, and that's putting it most charitably. Now I'm all of a sudden a conservative. This is not about being a liberal or being a conservative. It's about bodies of knowledge that we need to rely upon so that we can construct better lives. And what's happening right now is that the the academy has been 
really overrun by ideologues, and they're using non-rigorous methods to, to forward conclusions that are both morally repugnant and unsubstantiated by the evidence. They're totally untethered to reality. I was inclined to suggest that this was purely an issue with the social sciences, but evidently it's not when we get into the realm of climate control. Then hard science is going the same direction. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I don't have the data for that because we didn't submit papers to those to the hard sciences. But the feminist glaciology paper, and I hope you talked to Dr. Lindsay about that, so the seven were published and accepted, and then seven more we had ready to go or were under the process. So that they were paper, being entertained. Yeah, that paper argued that um, it was based on the feminist glaciology paper that female ways of knowing should be included in the sciences and in, in, astro- in astronomy, specifically astrology and tarot readings. And- I, I understand that there was actually uh, referenced in your article, I believe it was your article, into listening to the snow. Is that correct? So that is very interesting. It's actually incorrect. That is a paper that is the famous feminist or the infamous feminist glaciology paper. When people, the authors of that paper, stated some pretty pretty absurd things. And again, the problem is that if you can't differentiate bogus scholarship from actual scholarship, that's a problem. So we modeled that paper when we argued that there should be female ways of knowing for astronomy. So we should include witchcraft and horoscope readings. And the uh, reviewers' comments, which we posted online, they were very encouraging. And that paper would have been uh, resubmitted for publication. They, they had asked, they had requested it several times before the Wall Street Journal caught us. So the problem is that the sciences have also been corrupted by this. It's just the zeitgeist. It's the spirit of the times. And the spirit of the times is that uh, that there are tra- the traditional ways that we have come to knowledge are masculine, colonialist, etc., and they need to be disrupted. And that concept of dis- disruption is very, very popular in their literature. It's, it's pervasive throughout their literature. So any any paper that disrupts a way of knowing, specifically as male, Western, or colonialist, um, has has an increased likelihood of getting accepted, to say the least. That didn't actually come up the way I wanted to, but more or less, that's it. You wrote collectively, while our papers are all outlandish or intentionally broken in significant ways, it is important to recognize that they blend in almost perfectly with others uh, in disciplines. Uh, You also go on to write later, we also needed to write papers that took risks to test certain hypotheses, such as the fact that the acceptance itself makes a statement about the problem we're studying. In other words, so it was a necessary maneuver for you to do this to, in fact, prove how ridiculous the state of things or affairs have gotten in academia. And then you are chastised and attacked for it. What is your standing right now with your own university, the Portland State University, at this moment? Well, the formal investigation, I was found guilty of not going to the Institutional Review Board. And the other charge of, of fabrication of data, I have not heard, and I am still waiting to hear something. So hopefully, uh, obviously, it's a very uh, stress-filled um, time for me. So I'm still waiting to hear that. I, I will say that, that it's extremely uncomfortable every time I walk in there. Um, my colleagues have published uh, an anonymous hit piece on me in the student newspaper. 
and you know, I walk around campus and I see pictures of me with a big nose and, um, you know, saying that I, I'm a, a pro-life, Trump-supporting Republican, none of those things are true. Now, this is a very hostile environment for me right now. So it's, um, have you become, it, it's comfortable. Have you become Oregon's version of Jordan Peterson? Oh boy, I'm asked that a lot. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Myself to Peterson or anyone. Look, this. I just think that there's a problem in this literature. Uh, I think it needs to be fixed. I I love the university system. I think it's the gem of American exceptionalism. And right now, what's happening is that the university is in crisis, and that crisis is is primarily driven by left wing ideologues who are seeking ideological purity. They're not conducting rigorous scholarship. They're smearing anybody and everybody who disagrees with them about anything as racist, bigots, sexist, homophobes. And it's just that's just not true. And they're hurting people. And what's worse than that is that I'm deeply concerned about the students. They're teaching students things that they claim is knowledge, and it simply is not knowledge. It's make-believe land. Where does, and, this, where does this leftist self-infatuation come from? Well, I just tweeted out a piece about that today, part of it. It's that there aren't that many conservatives left in the university, and if they are, they're certainly not going to come out about it. So, you know, first they came to the conservatives, and then they came to the moderates, and now they're after the liberals. So, Of which you, you consider yourself most ardently to be a liberal. Absolutely. Okay. I check all check all the boxes for that. So so the problem is that there's a death of nuance in the universities. So you don't students never really hear the other side of the issue. They never really hear the other side of whatever whatever the moral issue is. And I've been told in no uncertain terms when I've been brought up on violations by the university that I'm not to render my opinion about certain protected classes, for example. Um, to that, I responded, well, what should I do if I'm asked my opinion about slavery? Right? So, so there are entire wings of university architecture that are dedicated to an activist agenda. But if somebody presents a side of an issue that they don't like, then um, they will weaponize the mechanisms of the university against you to silence you. So what and, happened and What happened yeah. to the free speech movement of Berkeley of the early 60s? How did we get to this anathema? I, I don't know the answer to your question. I, I think part of it has to do with we have um, eliminated diverse voices, but it, specifically conservative voices, because liberals, uh, a- academics in general, tend to fall on the left. But I think that the problem is far, far deeper than that. It's a very, very complicated problem. Well, do you actually think that it's that academics tend to fall on the left, or is it just merely that academics who are on the right can't get hired? I think that may be part of it. I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't know. How, I don't know the genealogy of how we got into this, this catastrophe, but I do know that unless these disciplines fix themselves, the problem is only going to get worse. So, for example, if you did this, if, if we did this to civil engineers, 
about bridge building, I, I don't think it's possible that we could have done it. But if, if we did and we slipped papers by them, then I think they would have thanked us. In fact, we were just at a, sci- a conference in Dresden, Germany, and many people were most emphatic that we should try to get our papers in their journals, because if we did, they said that there's a problem and they'd have to fix it. That is exactly the opposite attitude of what I've encountered. It's not, oh, thanks, you've pointed out a problem. It's to smear me as a racist or a homophobe, to attack my motivations, to say that I'm unethical, to claim that the journal uh, editors are human subjects, which is a bizarre way of looking at the problem. Instead of being honest about the nature of the problem, it's to attack the person who tries to point out the problem. And the consequence for that is that the whole institution of knowledge production becomes jeopardized. Have you confronted persons with reasoned data, legitimate data, and had anyone who would describe themselves as left or progressive acknowledge that the information you presented is orthodox and correct and then has subsequently amended their thinking as a result, or has that never happened? That's a great question. Um, So a few things. We've had people, to my utter astonishment, actually defend the papers. So, you know, one of the papers that we wrote was Fat Bodybuilding that claimed that there should be a category in professional bodybuilding called Fat Bodybuilding where fat people, they don't use the word obesity because they think obesity is a medicalized narrative. So they think that, we we argue that fat people should go and display their roles of fat on stage with competitive bodybuilders because it's just another tissue. And we had people who think this is a great idea. So... (laughs) How can you reason with that? Yes. So what are some of the examples of the most absurd things that you've seen been expected to be entertained? Well, that men should insert foreign objects into their rectums to remediate transphobia, as if there were any kind of a relationship between that activity and one's attitude about trans people. But the other thing is that 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 paper was accepted for publication, but it had a very, very small end, the number of people it allegedly interviewed to come to that conclusion. So even if one accepts that, utterly absurd conclusion. Was this this one of your fake papers you're talking about or somebody else's? This is ours, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, go ahead. This is ours. Even if one accepts that, pun intended, asinine conclusion, that it wouldn't wouldn't lead one, the data that we provided should not substantiate that conclusion. I'll give you an example of another paper that said four men masturbated four hours a day for a year and took the implicit bias test every two hours about their attitudes of women in science before and after watching different types of pornography. And then we devised a scale. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you the scale on the air about their opinions. And we had people saying that this is a reasonable activity, that this, that, that, I mean, it's so absurd, it's even breaking my brain to think about it. We had people argue that it would be reasonable for people to engage in 
thousands of hours of masturbation and take the implicit bias test about women in science every two hours for a year. <laughs> I'm biting my lip here. You don't know, Peter. What? <laughs> I can't, I can't control it anymore. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Oh gosh. Oh, okay. Man, how many hours of laughter have you been able to exercise? As speaking of other employments, for oh my gosh, and you know the thing that we that we didn't really tell anybody that that really hasn't come out yet is that all the people who have been fucking with me for years about this because I question their orthodoxy, yeah, we cited all their papers in our papers. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Okay, so okay, I gotta get some sobriety here. Ready? Okay. 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 Right. Just a few minutes ago, I asked you, "Have you had more or less any wins with being able to confront people with false data and uh, amend it?" A very commercial example of this, where people have changed their their thinking or at least modified their position, would be David Rubin of the Rubin Report, who had Larry Elder who we're going to have or may have already had at this point on this show. Larry Elder came out with facts and statistics regarding homicides in Chicago and and other factors. And on the spot, you could see, and David Rubin has acknowledged this, Dave Rubin since then, his mind going into overdrive, realizing that he had nothing substantial to say as a counterpoint. And thereafter, even though he still considers himself to be very much a libertarian, had to amend his attitude toward things that formerly he had just taken for granted. Have there been no wins in your situation where you've been able to present something and people have recognized the absurdity and said, you know what, I hate to admit it, but but Goshen's right. So two things. First, if your listeners have not seen that interview with Dave Rubin and Larry Elder, I would urge them to do that. The first thing that comes to my mind is how much integrity Dave Rubin had to not delete the scene because many people would have just deleted it. The second thing that comes to my mind is I had the same reaction. I couldn't give a response to Larry Elder about the systemic racism and to those claims. But the third and, and really most important thing is this is what it means to be rational. What it means to be rational is to change your mind, is to be willing to reconsider your beliefs and change your mind on the basis of evidence or lack of evidence. And so what Rubin did subsequent to that, I would argue, is just become, a ra- become more rational, right? In, in the Gorgias, Plato says that it is, better to be, it is better to be refuted than to refute. He says that's the greater gain of the two. And so we have lost something in our culture that's so ideologically driven, and, and the thing that we have lost is a willingness to change our minds about something. Years ago, Pete Townsend of The Who wrote a rock musical called Tommy, which you no doubt are familiar with. And there Absolutely. Was, there was a recurring verse which goes, we're not going to take it. Bum, bum, ba, dum, dum. We're not going to take it. 
I think, and others have suggested, that we are on the brink of a national movement of we're not going to take it. Now, when I say this, let me back up very, very clearly. I'm not talking about any organized hate group or anything like that. I'm, I'm disturbed that I even have to clarify that. But basically, an awakening uh, of many who proudly are on the left or progressive who are saying, yes, we're on the left. We are for progressive issues. Uh, we are for equality in every form that is is merited and 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 uh, apt and appropriate. But at the same time, we're not going to just swallow anything that comes down the pike. Do you think we are on the brink of that, or do you think we are a few years out from from this revelation for most people? I, I think I think we are on the cusp of that, and I think that the markers for that are if people are willing to sign their name to things, if people are willing to, to put their names on their line, I am, you know, John Smith, and what you have done here is wrong, and I am not a racist, I am not a bigot, and it is acceptable for me, not only acceptable, but in a college atmosphere, I have every right in the college environment to demand evidence when my professors make claims. Students should have every right to take exception to what they're learning in college. I want to bring in a concept that I just think is so important that it often gets overlooked in this, this conversation. And, and that the reason why this is so difficult to overthrow is because of what my friend Brett Weinstein calls idea laundering. Idea laundering is the, is the, process by which somebody has a moral impulse. They have some moral idea about one thing or another. And what they do is they get together with other people who have the same moral idea. And they either start a journal or write up whatever their moral idea is, and they publish it in a journal. So, And then it comes out on the other side as knowledge. So what's happening is we have a bunch of people who have very strong moral opinions about something, and many of those opinions I happen to, to share myself. I think they're based in very legitimate concerns about racism and structural inequalities that we absolutely must address. But what they've done is that they've taken these ideas and they've idealized them and they've come out the other side as knowledge. And one of the reasons that this problem is so entrenched and so difficult to fix is when you ask people how they know things or what their evidence is, they point to these bogus journals and these bogus articles in the bogus journals as knowledge, but they're not knowledge. They haven't come about as the result of a reliable process. Great, great examples of that, for example, would be in fat studies, which was one of our targets. How much do you think social science and its governing opinions is simply a matter of fashion? In other words, if you want to be in the accepted group, you just put on the pretense, even if you don't really believe this material that you pretend you do and it's automatic acceptance socially personally in every regard you mean how do i think that came about well how much do you think is that i mean i suspect because i like you i'm a college university professor i teach film that's my main discipline and communication but i have students who when you really press them don't really adhere to what they say they believe they're just simply saying it so they can parrot it to be accepted by other right. students so the problem with that is you would really wouldn't know because to test that you'd need survey data and people lie would lie on the survey data. I think a lot of it is 
to fit in in a culture. A lot of it is a kind of evangelism. And a lot of it is really, frankly, it's a, we've created a climate of fear on our college campuses. And that climate of fear is that when people are afraid to say what they, they believe. And the problem is that it's not only that the university professors buy into that, it's that many administrators buy into that. And there are institutions that can be weaponized, like bias response teams, that if people step out of line, the consequence of that is that they get reported. And those reports are held at the police police station by the police. So they can get uh, – there's a culture of fear, and they can get reported through bias response teams. They can be reported through uh, offices of diversity and inclusion. And then those – they can also be brought up on Title IX violations. And Title IX violations are federal, and they're very, very, very serious violations. I've had an interesting experience, uh, both myself and a colleague, uh, teaching at different universities where there have been uh, imposed safe areas, mainly for uh, transgender, gay students and what have you. And uh, I experienced this in a faculty meeting talking to our police department at one university. And the question was posed by a colleague of mine, have we had any instances where a gay student has ever been accosted, hurt, uh, threatened at all on our campus in its history? And the answer was no. And a colleague had a similar experience at his university where the same issue came up for designated safe areas, mainly for, for gay students. And I, I hasten to add that I lived in San Francisco for 11 years. I have many gay friends, so I'm not opposed in, to the gay community at all. But there's simply nothing to really substantiate the necessity of safe areas for gay students on campus once you investigate, at least in the, the, the two given circumstances that I'm aware of. And yet you would get the impression that students who are gay, who in my observation are heralded and, and, uh, and, and well accepted by the vast majority of students, is even, again, kind of cool to be gay, um, have an entirely different experience rather than what's supposedly warranted and desired by particular, if you will, identity groups. It's, it's actually far, far worse than that. You should see the reporting of Andy No NGO, and he has covered fraudulent ho uh, hoaxes when people claim that there are gay bashings or the Jesse Smollett case, etc. And it's fascinating that how many people lie about this and why they lie about it. So that's another example, going back to the David Rubin, Larry Elder conversation, of revising our beliefs. So I was laboring under the impression that, that there are a tremendous number of crimes, particularly in Portland, Oregon, against homosexuals, but that just turned out to be not true. There were hoaxes. Which we, so, we hasten to say, Peter, and, I, and this is necessary, um, I'm speaking to Dr. Peter uh, Bogosian, and myself, neither of us is saying that gay people have never been assailed or it does not happen right. on occasion. Neither of us are suggesting that. We're just merely saying that where it is alleged in instances, once you investigate, there isn't the substantial evidence to support the degree to which it is claimed. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. That, is, that is correct. And so since we're on the caveats about things, I unshakably believe that people should not be treated on the basis of their treated differently on the basis of their immutable characteristics it's like skin color or sexual orientation mm -hmm. agreed that that does not mean that we need to make stuff up 
that does not mean that we need to make stuff up to justify that conclusion. I believe that conclusion is rationally derivable, and it's precisely because it's rationally derivable and universal that I don't need to make stuff up. And when you have people making stuff up, it undermines the legitimacy of the claim, because then people point to that and say, aha, look, in the same way, for example, that people point to the fact that this is why we need ideological diversity in our universities. They point to the body of literature on climate change and they say, well, why should we believe this? Why should we believe this if we know the overwhelming majority of college professors are liberals? I'm not a liberal. This is just, this is just some kind of liberal nonsense. I think the greatest form of diversity that's that's in in lack of uh, evident supply is diversity of thought. We have plenty plenty of diversity in color, um, ethnicity, background, what have you. But I don't see I see a dearth of diversity of thought at the university, huh. and that is incredibly scary. Right, and so I think so. This took me a long time to figure out because I would go to these meetings, and by the way, there are so many meetings about diversity and virtually no meetings, if, if literally no meetings, about how do you grade somebody? How do you deal with an unruly student? It's all diversity. Right. So I would go to these meetings, and I could never understand, well, geez, why isn't there a Trump supporter? Why, why, why isn't there somebody who holds a heterodox view on this panel? The reason for that is because the way that they don't make neologisms, you know, they don't make two words, they don't stick two words together together. What they do is they change the meanings of words. They change the meanings of racism to be structural. They change the meaning of diversity. So diversity means exactly the opposite of what you think diversity means. It means homogeneity of opinion. So there's diversity of skin color and sexual orientation, which, of, of you know, who, who wouldn't want that? But what they mean is that people who have the same opinion. And if you happen to look differently, if you happen to be black, for example, and you have a different opinion, and I've seen this happen with my friend Faisal Al-Mutar, who's from Iraq, and Majid Nawaz, then you're called an Uncle Tom, right? You're called a house N-word. Mm. So they don't have any toleration for people who are members of minority groups who don't toe the party line. And we, I, to mention Larry Elder again, you see that with Larry Elder as well. So when they use the word diversity, they don't really mean what... You'd think they mean by diversity, they mean homogeneity of opinion. So, so one more thing. I think the uh, a theme that's come up in this is the ability or willingness to revise your beliefs about something. The, the, there are dogmas that are pushed right now as fact, and those dogmas are not facts. An example of that that's very ideologically driven is microaggressions. And there has been, there's a paper by a guy by the name of Scott Lillenfeld in 2017, Strong, uh, strong Claims and Adequate Evidence. I think that's the name of it. So there are actually data points against believing in some of these things, which is very different than saying, well, geez, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, so we better in- institutionalize it as some kind of a prophylactic. But instead that there are data that show that the practices that, that these ideologically driven practices that are being institutionalized in our universities are actually making students less resilient, and they're actually harming people. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to b- formulate your beliefs on the basis of evidence. 
That's also why it's so important that we need bodies of literature that we can rely upon to guide us to the truth. With the reapplication of words, as you've alluded to, on your worst day, do you envision that we're heading towards a truly Orwellian society? No, and I'll tell you why. Because I do not think that this is sustainable. I do not think that any ideology that does not root itself in a dialogue, these folks happen to believe that speech is violence. And when you believe that, that I, I don't, I don't, I think that far before this comes about, I mean, it's already really rather Orwellian and dystopian, but if you mean it in the true sense of Orwellian and dystopian, I don't see that as happening. I do not see this ideology as capable of sustaining itself. I think it will burn itself out. And the reason is because it's not rationally derivable and there's simply too much evidence against the claims that are made. You are listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and it has been my utter delight to have as our special guest, Dr. Peter Bogosian. Dr. Peter Bogosian, along with three, uh, excuse me, along with two of his colleagues, have set about to expose the, if you will, the fake premises often employed in bogus articles published in supposedly scholarly academic journals that have a specific endpoint in mind, usually advancing identity politics and social agendas which are more or less based on an intended outcome than evidence to substantiate. Peter, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this, and I also would like to invite you back. Uh, I'm intrigued by the the Richard Dawkins Association and your reason in science, and I'd love to have you on if you'd be so willing to maybe step away from this topic, which you've had an awful lot of lately, to just discuss atheism and humanism. Would you be willing to do that in the future? I I would absolutely love to do that, and I appreciate it. I appreciate the interview.